Hey, this is listener Cody from Orange County, California, and you're listening to Better Place Project. Make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. Make the world. Hey, hey, and welcome to the season two finale of Better Place Project. I cannot believe, Aaron, we are wrapping up season two. My, how the time flies. Yeah, season two was super awesome. It went by super fast, and I'm stoked for season three. Season three will be here before you know it on July 6th. Yeah, we're going to take a little bit of a breather, regroup on some things. We've already got some outstanding guests that we're keeping it a secret for now, but we're really excited about already some guests coming up in season three, like Aaron said, July 6th. Uh, But wow, what a ride it has been. We want to thank all you listeners out there for sticking with us through this journey. It has been so much fun and so rewarding. Thank you for the kind words and thoughts and and would love keep the comments and ratings and written reviews really help us on Apple Podcasts. So if you can go out and write us a few kind words, we would love you for it. And other than that, just thank you so much. Yes, thank you. And before we close out this season, I have to bring up some more of your words that you mispronounce because oh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> oh. I've noticed I've noticed when talking to you more frequently lately, I just always hear different words that you mispronounce. So, I have a couple more to throw out so there. So you have a little journal going of, uh, <laughs> of dad screw ups. Is that what we've got going on here? I have to. Well, how have you made it? Uh, how old are you? How have you made 29. it? <laughs> yeah. How have you made it 29 years of mispronouncing all of these words that you say all the time? Oh my so, gosh. Okay. One of them, you said it in, oh yeah. Our last episode with Di, you said uncomfortable instead of uncomfortable. You said no, uncomfortable. I, I said uncomfortable because I believe in uh, in enunciating and not getting lazy with my English language. So that is intentional. <laughs> it's not spelled uncomfortable. It's not, uh, it's spelled uncomfortable. This couch <laughs> is very comfortable. You guys have always made fun of me uh, for saying comfortable, but I uh, that is an intentional one that I'm sticking to my ground and not being <laughs> a lazy enunciator, smarty pants. So what else you got? <laughs> It just sounds it just sounds kind of goofy when you over enunciate your words like that. Does and it make you feel uncomfortable when I yeah, do that? Yeah, <laughs> very. <laughs> very what? Uncomfortable. <laughs> nice. We got to do a poll or something on Instagram or have listeners write in. I want to know how the rest of the world pronounces these words. Well, now see that I'm sure they're on be. my side. I'm glad you brought that up, Aaron, because that shouldn't be the barometer. Just the fact that everybody else is perhaps mispronouncing a word doesn't mean that we all should. If everybody jumps off a bridge, are you going to jump off one too? Okay, so you believe you're pronouncing it correct. Oh, I, I, it's not only a belief, it's I'm, I'm certain <laughs> of it. It's, that's, All right. that's why the originator spelled it uncomfortable, <laughs> A-B-L-E okay, at the okay. end. So. <laughs> so this one made me laugh. Um, in our Better Place Badasses episode, we were talking about Matthew McConaughey, and you pronounce his last name McConaughey, which I had never heard before. Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, that's how you said it. Matthew McConaughey. I think I'm kind of an in-between a he and a hey, actually. Matthew McConaughey. Hey. I, th- I think I'm in-between. I don't I don't think I say Matthew McConaughey because that, yeah, that doesn't that's, sound. 
Really? That's exactly what I heard. I, yeah. I, Matthew I, McConaughey. And I've never heard anyone I don't believe say that, that for a second. I don't <laughs> believe that for a second. But, All right. Well, I mean, there's proof. So listen back and you'll you'll hear it. Okay. I am deleting that episode <laughs> as we speak. It's gone. So this one I've noticed throughout my whole childhood oh my and gosh. especially lately. And even Aunt Karen brought it up to me. And I'm glad. Oh, since you mentioned that, Karen, I know exactly (laughs) what you're going to say. Yes. So instead of adult, you say adult and nobody else pronounces it that way either. So I have no clue where you got that. Actually, that wasn't the one I thought you were going to say with that, Karen. (laughs) Uh, I don't recall her bringing this one up to me. There's another one that I'll tell you about in a second. But how do I say it? Adult. Yeah, we're all adults here. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. how you say it. Yeah, we're all adults here. Come on. The word is adult, though. And you say adult or you say adult a lot in this podcast. And I always hear it. You always say adult. <laughs> yeah, well, you may have a point there because it's not spelled A-D-E-A-L-T. So I, yeah. think, I think that is kind of a, uh, that's an English way of saying it. That's the story I'm going with on this no. one. <laughs> adult. We're all adults here. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, I know how it's spelled. It's obviously A-D-U-L-T, but uh, wow, that just sounds natural to me. Hey, we're all adults here, so let's get over. But <laughs> no, when you mention Aunt Karen, Aaron's, of course, referring to my sister, Karen. She gives me so much grief, and I think uh, it's unwarranted because she says, I say, and I don't. She says, like, if uh, if you're off somewhere with family and you want someone to take a photo of you, she says, I say, hey, will you take a picture of me? P-I-T-C-H-E-R, which I don't. I'm do definitely say No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I say, hey, can you take a picture of me, please? But I don't, you know, the C is there in my head, the C-T, P-I-C-T-U-R-A, can you take a picture of me, please? But she hears it as picture all the time. And she says, you just mispronounce that. And it's all in good fun. <laughs> and she's ribbing me about it. But but I, I beg to differ. I'm hearing the C in my brain, whether, you know, she hears it or not. So anyway. <laughs> so, so why do you have strong convictions to pronounce uncomfortable with all of its syllables, <laughs> but not the word picture with all the letter sounds. <laughs> well, see, I, I, I feel like I am. I know I can hear it. I, I can hear it. It's just that she's not hearing it. And I'm just, I'm, <laughs> I'm subtle with it. Sometimes subtlety is a good, is a good thing. Okay. <laughs> That's my story. And I'm sticking with it. Are we done with this? Uh, this is turning into almost a weekly uh, thing here with my words. So Yeah, yeah. No, I'm sure there's going to be more, but we'll just cap it at that. <laughs> Woohoo! I can't wait. Actually, I think I can wait. <laughs> okay, so as most of you know, this is Mental Health Awareness Month. And over the last few weeks, we've just had some really cool guests on this topic. A couple weeks back, we had Dr. Christian Heim, who was here talking about preventative mental health. Last week, we had Di Emanuel talking about how to be a champion of change. And this week, we have yet another extraordinary, there is that word again, Aaron, guest. Aaron, tell us about our last but certainly not least guest of season two. Dr. Chloe Carmichael graduated with honors from Columbia University and holds a doctorate in clinical psychology from Long Island University. Her private practice focuses on stress management, relationship issues, self-esteem, and coaching. She is also a former adjunct college professor, yoga instructor, 
and co-chair of a committee for the New York Junior League. She has been published in various academic journals and has been featured on VH1, Inside Edition, ABC Nightline, and other media. She's also the author of Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. If you're like me at all and feel hesitant or anxious about starting to socialize again after this year of quarantine, this episode is for you. Dr. Chloe shared some really helpful tips on how to combat all that anxiety. Yeah, and what I liked about it is she not only talked about anxiety and how we feel when it when it when we're hit with it, but also how to instead of fighting it, embracing it. And it can it's actually our friend. It's actually we feel anxious because we want to do a good job in the meeting or we want to do a a a good job at our job or what have you. And and but she talked about other really cool things and tools to help improve self-esteem, which I thought was was awesome. We can all use that every now and then. Definitely. I liked hearing her perspective on anxiety because I've always considered it to be something that's very negative, but we can actually accept that and use our anxiety to benefit us in our lives. No question about it. And in my case, we talked a little bit about me, I have a tendency to be a perfectionist and to the point where then when something doesn't go like I want it to, I'm hard on myself and I have negative thoughts and, and yeah, and she just completely twists that around and says, embrace that. Show gratitude that you have these thoughts because that means you care about your work and you take pride in and all of that. So just a great way to kind of shift uh, the mindset, which I think can be very, very powerful. And then we shifted gears a bit and started talking about relationships. And that was actually kind of cool. We talked about the surprise benefits of dating uh, multiple people in the early stages of dating. And there's going to be a lot of people coming out of this pandemic that are getting back out there in the dating world. She has some great advice on that. So our single listeners, before you get out there and start dating, you'll have to listen to Dr. Chloe's tips and strategies for that. Definitely. And then lastly, we asked Dr. Chloe to share her thoughts on the Me Too movement. Her somewhat controversial take on this may surprise you. So without further ado, our conversation with Dr. Chloe Carmichael. How you doing, Dr. Chloe? I'm great, Steve. How are you? Doing awesome. Also here with my incredibly intelligent and astute daughter, Erin. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Chloe, for coming on the show. Let's jump right in. And it is, as you know, Mental Health Awareness Month. But I'm kind of wondering if this particular time we should call it Mental Health Awareness Year because <laughs> of what we've all been through and so much of us have had so much anxiety in our lives and over the last year or even 15 months, you know, some of us hardcore anxiety. So without giving away all the secrets in your book, can you shed a little light on how we can harness that anxiety and turn it into a positive? Yeah, definitely, Steve. And I just want to say I, I agree with you that it has been a challenging year. But on the positive side, I do think it has really opened people up to you know, being constructive about saying, you know, are there are there ways I could improve my self care, right, if there were ever a need to do it. And the beauty of it is, I think, is that if people pick up skills now, because they're really feeling the burn, feeling sure. the hour of need, the good news is, is that those skills 
stay with you, you know, for the rest of your life. Um, so one of the points that I think is most important as a starting point um, to answer your question about that is to first of all, understand that there is a healthy function of anxiety, right? Anxiety is not, you know, necessarily always the bad thing. The healthy right. function of anxiety is actually to stimulate preparation behaviors. So if we can start, you know, with that framework that, you know, when we're experiencing anxiety, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with us. In fact, it could be a healthy awareness of anxiety. The trick is just to make sure that we point that energy in the right direction instead of either ruminating or, you know, getting down on ourselves for feeling what's actually sometimes a normal and healthy emotion. And to clarify, when we talk about anxiety, are we talking about all types, such as anxiety about the pandemic or stress in the workplace, financial problems, or maybe just speaking in front of people? Yes. <laughs> all of the above, right? So, okay. you know, as, as you said, you know, sometimes it can just be anxiety over feeling that we're being hit with challenges and stressors from all sides, and we're just feeling kind of overwhelmed by the total picture. And then sometimes, or in addition, we can have, you know, specific anxiety about a certain particular sphere. So let's say it's a specific anxiety about a job that we have, for example, or a meeting that's coming up and, and it's the next day and we're not sure if we're prepared and we've got a colleague that's, uh, that's been a nemesis in the office. And these are the types of stress and anxiety that I think a lot of us feel sometimes. Uh, so what... What steps can we take to kind of manage that in the next 24 hours to minimize this anxiety that in so many cases is just totally unnecessary, but what can we do to minimize that and control it? Yeah. So I, ironically, Steve, I would say that we don't necessarily want to minimize the anxiety. We actually want to capitalize on it, right? Okay. Um, so for example, if you're aware that you've got a big meeting tomorrow and you're feeling anxious about it. Um, what might be helpful is to take that little tickle of, you know, adrenaline or, you know, restlessness that you're feeling and, you know, make a list of all the things that you could do to prepare for the meeting. So there's a technique in the book called the zone of control about a man who's, you know, nervous about whether or not he's going to get a promotion and he can spin his wheels in an unproductive manner focusing on aspects of that that he cannot control. Like, for example, maybe the boss has somebody else in the office and they're really chummy or something. And But focusing on that is not going to help the man in the book at all. But mm -hmm. what would help the man in the book, so he's he also, he's made a mistake at work in the past and um, he's nervous if that's going to come up in the interview. So what he does is then schedule some mock interviews with people so he can practice talking about that mistake and finding the right ways to talk about it. So by differentiating what is within his zone of control, like, you know, the things that he can do, um, mm -hmm. and then taking that restless energy and focusing on that, and then it makes it that much easier to not focus on the parts that he knows are not going to be helpful to himself. And then after the interview, after the meeting, then it's no longer helpful really to focus on any of that stuff anymore. Sure. So at that point, he then might want to switch to a different technique in the book, for example, called the mental shortlist, 
where we give ourselves a list of like five really good juicy topics to think about instead to help ourselves pivot and move on. And that's why one of the reasons why the first technique in the book is actually a mindfulness technique so that we can first, when we're feeling anxious, look at what's going on. Is this an anxiety situation that is um, gonna be best served by learning how to focus and prepare and face that stressor? Or is this an anxiety situation where the best thing to do is really just to learn how to relax and let go and not think about it? Both solution approaches are great, but you can see where we have to make sure we are using the right tools in the right situation. Sure. Yeah, I think that's wonderful advice. And speaking of mindfulness, I I know that you've been doing yoga for many years and meditation as well. Can you talk about how that has played a role in your life and helped you to uh, reduce or harness anxiety? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, the body-mind connection is is so incredibly profound. And, you know, the Johns Hopkins Institute or the Massachusetts Medical School, Harvard Medical School, all of these places, you know, have centers devoted to the study of mindfulness because, you know, and, and that is so, so tied to yoga. So I personally was a yoga teacher before I became a psychologist. And I was working with, you know, really kind of driven neurotic New Yorkers. And I say that, sure. you know, myself <laughs> as a neurotic New Yorker. Um, and, and they would, they would have these things where they would say like, well, I want a yoga program that's going to teach me strength or teach me balance. And so I would not only give them a yoga program that was going to specifically be about building physical strength, but I would then want to accompany it with meditations about mental strength and learning, you know, to stand firm when, you know, you're feeling a, feeling, you know, a resistance, so to speak, um, or, you know, other appropriate meditative pairings, like somebody who's seeking flexibility, not only yoga postures to do that, but then mental postures that would also be around, you know, letting go and adapting. And it was so interesting how the physical postures would complement the mental meditations and, yeah. and the reverse. So that was actually then what stimulated me to get a PhD in clinical psychology. I started to get really into noticing what these driven people were doing with their minds. And I, I wanted to know more about it. But at the end of the day, my, my, my training was primarily in yoga. And so that's why I went in then to get the PhD in clinical psych. Ah, which you just asked one of uh, Aaron's questions that she wanted. Uh, she was curious about that as well. Like what kind of yeah. led you through that? Erin, uh, did you have anything to add to that? Or Well, I just want to know, did you, you know, working with patients who have struggled with anxiety, have you experienced that yourself at all? Oh, all the time. Of course, you know. Um, but again, to me, the, the trick is to learn that it's actually a springboard, right? Like there's 100% healthy anxiety. A person without any anxiety, for example, wouldn't cross the street. I mean, would, sure. wouldn't live right. both ways before they cross the street. Right. So, for example, when I was starting my practice, I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to get enough clients to even survive, right? I mean, at this point now, you know, my practice employs many people and I don't worry about that. But yeah. when I was first starting, I mean, I was living in a women's, you know, single SRO rooming house in New York City and I, wow. you know, didn't have any support. Um, and I was terrified. I, I had a lot of anxiety, but that anxiety is exactly what fueled me 
to, you know, write out little equations of like how many clients a week and to make sure that I would report to my office for 40 hours a week, whether I had a client or not. And then instead of just sitting there staring at the walls thinking, oh, no, I don't have a client, I would I would have a list of what I could do to help me get a client. Um, anxiety is usually stimulating us again to take a healthy preparation behavior. We just want to make sure we listen to it and use it. I actually think it was that very anxiety that that gave me the fuel to build my practice. Wow. I love that. And I love your approach to anxiety because in my mind, it's always been something bad that can't serve me and that holds me back in life and all of that. But I love how you've come up with strategies on how we can channel that and actually, you know, give it the chance to benefit us in our own lives because it can serve us in a positive way. So I think that is super, super interesting. I wanted to ask you though, we kind of touched on this earlier, but right now, I mean, with the pandemic and everything, and as we ease out of quarantine, I think so many people are feeling more socially anxious than they have been before. Do you have any strategies for that transition? A hundred percent I do. In fact, I even have an acronym for it. (laughs) We love acronyms here. We do. (laughs) I have three, three main tips and they are organized into the acronym SUN because sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? So the S, the S is for scan. So when we go into a group situation, which many of us have not been in perhaps for a long time, we almost can have like a spike in our social anxiety, right? Because it's been such a long time. Of course. Yeah. So when we go into a, a room, you know, full of people, I want us to start scanning for five signs of social acceptance. And that can be anything from eye contact to a smile, to a wave, to open body language. Just train your brain that you're going to start scanning for five signs of social acceptance. And what that will do is it also um, interrupts or prevents an anxious monologue of just kind of random anxiety mm-hmm. thoughts because your brain now has like a little task that it's working on. And yeah. that task is one that's going to be geared to bridge you into focusing on social connections, which is presumably on some level your goal for going into the you know room of people. <laughs> and then the right. you is for update, right? So in psychology, there's something called the halo effect, which is that when we meet somebody that first time, if they make a great first impression on us, everything they do, we filter through that. Or if they make a bad first impression, everything we're like, oh, I knew it from the start. You know, <laughs> that halo effect, you know, kind of sticks with us. Many of us, when we first met COVID, you know, back in March of last year, we were meeting, you know, what we thought was, you know, like no, no food in the grocery stores. Remember, we couldn't get toilet paper. Sure. We couldn't get oh, yeah. enough hand sanitizer. We believed, you know, that millions and millions of people right here in the U.S., you know, were going to be perishing. There weren't enough ventilators. I mean, it was a scary, scary time. And I think many of us are still mentally and emotionally in that same place because we shut ourselves into our homes back in March. And then we kind of really have to consciously update ourselves that that we don't want the halo effect to keep making us think that we're dealing with the same monster that, you know, we encountered originally. Um, and then the end mm-hmm. is for normalized. So again, I kind of touched this already, but anxiety is a normal thing. It's a healthy thing. Um, mm-hmm. it, it has a lot of benefits. So even if you do notice that you're a little anxious about, you know, returning to normal life, don't take that as a bad thing. That can mean number one, that you're invested and you're excited and you just really want it to go well. And 
That's why you're a little nervous, but you can reframe that as like a, a healthy tickle to, you know, give yourself mm-hmm. some preparation behavior. So sun to scan, update and normalize. Love That's that. Great. Yeah. I've got to remember that normalize. That is another reason why I really appreciate what you do because having this conversation about anxiety and social anxiety makes me and so many other people feel better and more at ease knowing that they're not alone and the only people dealing with this. It's so universal and that is very comforting. Well, good. I'm so glad to know that, Erin. <laughs> I, I really am. And, you know, for young people, especially, um, I think that this has been a hard time, right? Because you've been going through the times when you're kind of supposed to be out there, you know, exploring your adult identity and, you know, trying on different identities for size. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that process has been interrupted. And so um, I I just really want young people, especially um, to to learn a little bit about this, about anxiety. And and just as you said, that it doesn't have to be a barrier. You're right. It doesn't have to be a barrier. That's great. Another area of expertise that you have is in the area of self-esteem. What are a few tools we can add to our toolbox to help us just like ourselves more and feel good about ourselves more? Mm-hmm. Well, so one of the things, you know, that I really like about, you know, my, my book is that it, it increases self-efficacy, right? So self-efficacy is very tied to self-esteem. Um, self-efficacy is our belief in ourselves to be able to do things and, and to be effective, right? When, when we feel good about our ability to be effective upon our stressors, um, it, it improves our self-esteem, right? And so, for example, one of the hallmarks of depression um, is a sense of helplessness. And people with that helplessness oftentimes don't have a very good self-esteem. So the more that we can give ourselves tools to increase our self-efficacy, oftentimes then um, the the better our self-esteem becomes. Um, Another thing I would say, and this is kind of counterintuitive, um, but a lot of high-functioning people and, you know, self-esteem issues there will tie to perfectionism. And so they will be very hard on themselves when they realize that they're making little mistakes. And so the book actually has a whole section on perfectionism because it's, it's saying that when you find yourself kind of quote, like messing up or, you know, like your inner critic is, you know, you, you cut yourself in the moment of like an inner critic being really caustic. Um, people tend to then get down on themselves for that. And what I suggest that they do instead is actually congratulate yourself on the awareness of the mistake, because non-awareness of the mistake is actually obviously worse, right? So if when we recognize that we're kind of going off track a little bit, instead of just immediately castigating ourselves, the first thing we want to do is to congratulate ourselves on our awareness. And then again, the first technique in the book is about mindfulness so that we can then in a mindful way, rather than kind of like a reactive way, we can just greet that mistake with curiosity. So like one of the examples I give in the book, for example, is like somebody that's trying to be on a low sugar diet, and then they go to a friend's birthday party after a long day of work and like, you know, go crazy a little bit on the cupcakes, right? So in, in, in that moment, instead of just self flagellation over that, if we can have a mindful curiosity, so that difference between, um, you know, being responsive and curious versus reactive, 
the reactive part would be, you know, again, to just, you know, berate yourself for that. But the mindful response would be to greet it with curiosity to be able to say, okay, how did this happen? You know, was there a part of me that was, you know, saying I was going to have a cupcake because I wanted to participate, but it was secretly a desire to have a cupcake? Was I just caught without food? And then like, as we start to become really curious, we can then think about good problem solving techniques like, oh, well, you know, maybe I can make a point to mention it to my friend in advance next time, or I can stock up my bag. But the idea is just that we can become mindful about mistakes, then we can become, we increase our self-efficacy, which increases our self-esteem, round and round we go. Dr. Chloe, have you secretly talked to a bunch of my friends and family? And because uh, that last uh, comment was, I felt like was dr- like just completely made for me because I tend to be an over perfectionist. I tend to be so hard on myself when I do something, you know, wrong or, or in the dialogue will come. It's like, Steve, you're an idiot. What'd you do that for? Why'd you, you know? And, and yeah, that's great advice. That's a chapter that uh, I certainly need to go read, which by the way, I want to give a shout out to it. The book is Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety by Dr. Chloe Carmichael. And we'll put this uh, in the episode notes as well. So great advice. I, I want to just, you know, to share one more thing about that. Please. You said that that was the thing for you. And it is for a lot of high functioning people. Um, and again, like there, there's, there's a plus side to that, right? When we think about perfectionism as just basically a desire for excellence, right? Except, you know, maybe it's just going a little bit haywire. So <laughs> when, when we have that inner critic become active, instead of, you know, trying to shout that inner critic down and like scold it and almost become inner critic-y on our inner critic, what mm-hmm. I think is oftentimes so much more productive, you know, with that nervous energy, or if we see that inner critic as almost a form of nervous energy, is to actually, again, thank it. So just like we want to congratulate ourselves on, you know, realizing when we are making a mistake, we want to say to the inner critic, hey, thank you. I know you're coming from a good place. I know you're, you know, just bringing this up because you want me to not get blindsided, you know, by these Mm -hmm. flaws or these issues. I know you're coming from a good place and I share your goal of wanting excellence on this. Um, What would you say, dear inner critic, to maybe just approaching this with some slightly different tools that have been shown to increase motivation and success? And so then that way we can partner with that part of ourselves and try to reshape it instead of just getting into a shouting match within ourselves. Hmm. I love it. So basically, <laughs> let me practice this right now. Okay, so instead <laughs> of saying, uh, Steve, you so could have rephrased that question in a much better manner to Dr. Chloe, I need to say, <laughs> hey, good job. You care about the questions that you're asking. Wow, what a shift. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> seriously, yeah, what a, what a shift. I think that's awesome advice that I don't <laughs> think I've ever heard. I'm glad. I just had a quick little question I want to throw out there talking about anxiety. So we talked about how it's so common for us to experience it ourselves, but I want to know if you had any advice or tips for people who know somebody that's experiencing anxiety in their life and how can we better comfort them when they're going through something like that? Mm -hmm. Well, I I think that's going to depend on if that person you know, recognizes and identifies themselves as anxious, right? Mm -hmm. So if they do recognize and identify themselves as anxious, 
um, you know, you could certainly even just kind of blame it on me. You could say, you know, hey, I <laughs> learned about this new approach to anxiety. I know you've been really down on yourself about anxiety, but you know, there's a there's a new way of thinking about it. You might want to check this, you know, book out because what's interesting too is that people with anxiety are often better helped by self help than, for example, people with depression because people mm -hmm. with depression, one of the kind of features of it is oftentimes you know, lethargy, or again, that yeah. feeling of helplessness. And so they'd be like, oh, I don't know where well, the book's not even going to help me, you know, and mm -hmm. so they, they won't really even read it and put their energy into it. Whereas the anxiety, people with anxiety tend to have a very high level of conscientiousness and, you know, a, a willingness to kind of like complete the directions and, you know, try it all. So um, one, if the person identifies as anxious, you know, I would consider trying to help them see it as, you know, potentially a positive that they can utilize. Um, if the person doesn't identify as anxious, if you just think they are, but they don't seem to realize it, um, you know, you could just say to them, you know, you, you seem really worried about this stuff, you know, that you're talking about. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you want to tell me like more about it, like, you know, you're super worried about this test coming up. Can you talk about, you know, what's behind that? Like if, if the test doesn't go the way you're hoping, what is it that you're imagining will happen? Because I just really want to understand what's happening in your mind. Yeah, that's great advice. I think that's very well put because it just seems like so often in life, we all worry about so many things that never happen. The meeting never goes as bad as we think it's going to be. The party is never as bad or, or, or we never look as bad as we think we're going to look in that dress. Not that I wear dresses, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's so true that, that I think uh, that's good advice to focus on, okay, what is the worst that's going to happen in that, you know, with this test tomorrow? If I get AC, is it the end of the world or what have you? And and what can I do? And this goes back to what you said at the beginning of our, of our conversation. I'm feeling this anxiety. So what can I do to make myself feel better about it? All right, let's take this next half hour since I'm feeling a little restless. And let me study the you know, main bullet points that the teacher gave us a little bit. And I think that will put us more at ease and more relaxed and you know, about, about the test. Am, am I a good student, Dr. Chloe? Did I answer that properly? Yes, Steve. In fact, <laughs> you know, there, you're you're reminding me of another little, you know, um, technique or, or label in the book that you might find interesting, which is defensive pessimism. So ah. it's, it's actually a very normal and even healthy thing to a certain degree to have what psychologists call defensive pessimism. So for example, you know, if, if you were just like, oh, well, of course, I'm going to do great on that test. And of course, I'm going to look fabulous. I don't have to bother, you know, with any preparation, right, then we would be, you know, vulnerable to maybe um, being caught off guard. And so mm -hmm. as a defense, we can sometimes think about potentially negative outcomes. And that can also help to guard against, um, you know, being blindsided by disappointment, like, oh, it never occurred to me, you know, that I wouldn't mm -hmm. get that job, you know, we, we have to think about, you know, some of the potentially negative outcomes. We just don't want to go haywire and get into the catastrophic thinking category. Um, so you're right on the money, Steve, to think about that high functioning people do need to find the sweet spot between look because it's actually an executive uh, lobe function to be able to think about the future and consider potential consequences. It's a gift 
but we can go haywire with it. So Mm. thanks for highlighting that. (laughs) Well said. Good stuff. Okay, now that you've taught us how to harness our anxiety, many of our listeners are single men and women who have been cooped up during this pandemic for the last 15 or 16 months, who are now finally going to be able to go out and date again. And fortunately for all of these people, you've also written a book called Dr. Chloe's Ten Commandments of Dating, How to Stop Getting Hurt, Put Yourself Out There, and Find a Relationship That Lasts. So can you share with us a few dating tips for coming out of a pandemic? Yes, definitely. So my book, Dr. Chloe's 10 Commandments of Dating, um, has all kinds of strategies. I'm actually thinking of almost rewording and re-releasing the book as like dating for high-functioning people because it's Uh very methodical and and very goal-oriented. But one of the things I would say that can actually perhaps even be helpful specifically um, around a pandemic is that rule one, briefly done. I always encourage first dates should be brief anyway, like especially if it's someone that, you know, maybe you're meeting through a dating app. And the reason is because I see so many times where somebody goes on a first date, it lasts like five or six hours. They have the time of their life and then they don't hear from the person or the person, you know, follows up in kind of a weird way. And the thing is, is that you have to remember, of course, when you're dating for a relationship, you have to be dating for more than just entertaining good times in the moment. You're also looking for somebody that's reliable and stable and has good follow-up skills and is consistent and organized. And you'll never really find that out until you find out how they behave after the date, where they just having a good time in the moment and that's it. Um, or are they somebody that says, wow, that was a great time. I want to, you know, see her again. And then they follow up and make it happen. You'll never know that till after the date. So I encourage people anyway to not invest more than 90 minutes in the first date, but especially in a pandemic when we're all being told to kind of keep things brief and don't necessarily want to be in a taxi bar hopping from place to place. Anyway, it's the perfect time to remember rule one briefly done. Mm-hmm. And on that topic, you wrote a blog that I read the other day called The Surprising Benefit of Dating More, which I found kind of interesting. And I was, for example, married to Aaron's mom for 24 years, something like that, and and was kind of thrust out into the single world about eight or nine years ago. And it was a completely different world with the online dating and everything that you that you are, are, are talking about. And that was also something that was really foreign to me that you that, you know, the idea of dating multiple people at one time in the early stages of dating before jumping into a committed relationship. Can you talk about that strategy? Well, I don't know if strategy is the right word or not. Strategy is exactly the right word. Like, I mean, so I, I, I want people to know it's perfectly fine to be strategic. I mean, finding a partner and I'm happily married myself, you know, finding a partner is just one of the most foundational things that we can have in our lives. It's also financially yeah. one of the biggest contracts that we ever really sign, right? So mm-hmm. why on earth wouldn't we be, you know, strategic and methodical about it? Unless, you know, you're lucky enough to have just, you know, naturally met your partner in your early 20s and you know good for you um Mm -hmm. truly you know but for anyone who's you know not in that space and they don't want to just leave it to chance 
Um, why not be strategic? I think it's a great thing to do. And you're actually going right into rule two numbers for you. Ah. <laughs> Which is, you know, that, that there is, a, there are benefits of dating more. So certainly it gives you, you know, the ability to kind of compare different people a little bit, right? So if you're like, well, gee, like, so and so I always have a good time with him, but I always end up feeling really self-conscious and I'm not sure why, you know, whereas so-and-so I, I don't end up feeling that way. And it's not that I'm changing between these two dates. So maybe there's something about this person, you know, that's making me feel insecure. It gives you a little bit of a comparison. Um, also, it helps you to make sure that you don't come across with like a hungry dating energy, right? You know, you don't want anyone to feel like, wow, this is like the first date they've had in a long time, right? <laughs> it just kind of keeps you you know, fresh and being out there. Um, and also to your point about, you know, exclusivity, many people do have a tendency that they just meet somebody. And if it feels like a fit, they just go into becoming what I call exclusive by default, where they don't even have a conversation about exclusivity, they just stop dating other people. And then, you know, or they do have a conversation about exclusivity, but it's nothing beyond just the fact that we will be exclusive. Mm -hmm. It's not um, finding out what's the reason for the exclusivity. Yeah, to your to your point. In fact, in that article, you mentioned that so many times men and women do what you had you had just mentioned that they meet somebody so that all their focus is on that and all they've had is a glass of wine with them for an hour Tuesday night and so now all of a sudden they're just focused on that where where you've talked about that you've had patients, for example, that have talked about their frustration with this and that when they finally stop waiting for, and it may be a guy that they really, really like, in this case, we'll talk about a woman because I think that's what you mentioned in the blog, that that it's a guy she really liked and waited around and two, three days didn't re respond to her. And then she just, okay, I'm going to go out on a date with some other guy and met the man of her dreams was the other guy that did that they did hit it off with and that he did follow up with her and so forth. So just in that case, changing the strategy actually helped her found, find her, her partner. Right. So the desire for attention or the desire to feel wanted or the desire to feel like you're making progress towards your goal of finding, you know, your partner doesn't have to all suddenly become tied up on one person that, you know, you don't even necessarily really know that well yet. Um, so in terms of that exclusivity, again, like a lot of times people will, you know, pin the exclusivity on when they start having sex. Right. Mm -hmm. And but then we have to ask, like, well, well, really, why? Like, is it because the person he just wants to be able to have sex and he knows I'm not going to do it unless it's exclusive? Or, you know, is it just a matter of, of, of convenience or maybe they just enjoy, you know, monogamy? But I don't really know if it's because he sees himself eventually getting married to somebody, you know, like me or if he even, you know, wants the same things in life that I do. And a lot of times women are really afraid to have these conversations because they don't want to seem desperate. And so I like to help them to reframe it by saying it's actually not at all desperate. It's actually discriminating mm -hmm. that when he says like, oh, well, you know, like, let's have sex. And then you're like, oh, well, I don't know if we're really there yet. Like, we're not even exclusive. And then he's like, oh, well, I'll be exclusive. And then you say like, oh, really? Well, because why? Because like, I'm not sure I should really take myself off the dating market to be exclusive when we haven't even had to talk about our, you know, what kind of future you see yourself having or what kind of timeline you want to have on that. 
I'm not even saying I'm ready to have that conversation, but I'm just saying I probably wouldn't just become exclusive until we kind of at least understood those sorts of things about each other. I'm happy to keep going out with you and having fun. (laughs) But, you know, before we get so serious, you know, like I would kind of need to know those things, but I'm not even saying I'm ready to talk about those things yet. So then you're not coming across as uh, desperate, but you're more coming across as discriminating. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And as you're talking about that, it kind of also reminded me of the dynamic of the, over the last few years, the Me Too movement. And you wrote a really interesting article that personally, Dr. Chloe, I want to compliment you on it because I think it took maybe some courage to write that, uh, called The Dark Side of Me Too. I have a close friend who was falsely accused of some horrible thing by a, an estranged ex-wife years ago. Thankfully, the courts agreed that the accusations were false. And so through him, I've seen the devastating impacts that that had on his life. Can you share your thoughts on the dark side of the hashtag MeToo movement? Sure. Yeah. And you're right. It did take a lot of a lot of bravery. I was really afraid of, you know, like big backlash. backlash. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, I feel like recognizing, you know, first of all, intelligent people will make up lies. What's very interesting is that even in children, children who lie from an early age, are often the most intelligent ones, right? So if we recognize, you know, of course, women are, you know, strong, intelligent people that can um, recognize that there are certain levers, you know, that they can manipulate in certain situations. Um, it's just, you know, it's it's just obvious, right? Like we, we yeah. know that we can do that. And I think it actually cheapens allegations if we're supposed to auto assume that they are true, um, because then it's like we're lumping them all together with um, allegations that have been really investigated and proven. If we're putting that in the same bucket as, you know, just um, something that somebody said, um, I actually feel like we're cheapening the other allegations sure. by just lumping them all together. And, you know, in my own practice, um, I would say also it, it harms even the female accuser or the male accuser, but um, it's often the woman. It actually harms the female accuser um, when she's in an environment that is just going to almost perpetuate this for her. Um, and then years later, she's racked with guilt. Carrying I've that worked guilt with, all those years. Yeah. I have worked with such women, right? Where in college, you know, maybe they slept with somebody that they regretted for whatever reason. And in the moment, it seemed like kind of a way out of it to say like, oh, well, it was a date rape situation or whatever. And in the moment, it seemed like, oh, well, I'm just getting out of this. But then next thing you know, there's like this, you know, testimony and, you know, this thing. And, you know, in in the moment, they just can get carried away with all this like swarm of, you know, supporters and Mm -hmm. around them. Um, and, and then years and years later, it, it stays with them and, and they, they feel terrible. Um, it, it also, I think that attitude of just auto believing, um, I think it hurts women too, because it makes men afraid, you know, to be alone with women. Sure. I, I'm a member of the entrepreneurs organization, which is a wonderful elite membership for, uh, owners of businesses that generate at least a million a year in revenue. 
Um, and most of the members are men. And, you know, I've just had the privilege to sit quietly and privately with them. And, you know, they've shared with me that it's like, they ironically kind of don't want to hire or be alone with women as much because they're really afraid of, you know, of, of a false allegation. I've also worked with wow. men in my office that were not coming to me because they had a false allegation. That has happened too, but I'm always a little bit more suspicious of that because I'm like, are you coming to me? Who knows? Maybe you did it and you're trying to go through the motions of making it look like a false allegation or whatever. But I've, I've also, you know, worked with men that were seeing me that I knew for years. And then they've been saying like, you know, I, I, I think there's this woman in my office and I think she's going to do something to me. She told me that if I didn't give her this, you know, promotion, she was going to say such and such. And, you know, and they're oh like sitting gosh. there like freaked out about it. And, you know, these are men that I I've known even before, you know, this became an issue. And so all of these things combined, I, I ended up also doing a talk for an organization called FACE, which is Families Advocating for Campus Equality. Um, and I gave a talk for them about this issue too. And I, I had the privilege of sitting with uh, about a dozen young men. I swear I get emotional just talking about it because I'm a mom to a son myself. I, 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 I sat with, you know, about a dozen young men uh, that all, you know, had a false accusation. And because of Title IX, you know, they were immediately expelled from school wow. and all of these things. And um, I just, I think it hurts women. And I think it obviously hurts men too. So I think the takeaway here is it hurts everybody. Okay, I had one other question on another blog that you wrote called Don't Feel Chemistry with Nice Guys. Here's how to change that. And that kind of also struck a chord with me because I've had some good female friends that continuously seem to date bad boys and they can't break the habit. And, and I've also had really amazing male friends who are the nicest guys in the world and they can't seem to find a date sometimes to, you know, to save them. I'm asking for a friend. This is not me. Oh, sure. <laughs> but, uh, but so what advice do you have for both, you know, women and these men in these situations? Yeah, so it's one of those really cruel ironies that when somebody plays hot and cold with us, they actually get our um, adrenaline pumping. And then we are inclined to misattribute that adrenaline and butterflies in our stomachs to thinking this person must just be really exciting, right? Like I must just, I feel very aroused, right? Like it's um, even fear is a form of physiological arousal. So when somebody's unavailable or keeps you guessing or, you know, just a lot of those, you know, bad boy tactics, um, that's ironically when we can feel the most um, arousal. In fact, it's one of the really weird dark sides of um, physically abusive relationships is that after yeah. a woman may have been um, smacked around a little bit, She's very kind of vulnerable and her heightened sense of awareness and all this stuff. And then if it's immediately followed with like a big dramatic makeup oh, set, I'm so sorry. it will ironically be some of sometimes the most satisfying sex to her body because her body has been through this like, you know, big drama. Um, and then the more oxytocin a woman's body puts out during sex which she puts out more oxytocin, the more orgasm she has, 
the more bonded she gets to the man. Gosh. Uh, and therein <laughs> lies exactly why they stick with yeah. these abusers, I guess. Yes. Oxytocin is the same chemical that a woman releases when she's breastfeeding. It helps her to bond to the baby. Um, so, yeah, it's the, when a man plays hot and cold or a woman plays hot and cold, um, but, you know, oftentimes it's more women that come to my office saying that they just keep going for, you know, bad boys because, you know, they're, they're exciting. And then they, they get calibrated to that level of, quote, excitement. And then they find Daddy Eddie who just shows up with like a sappy bouquet of flowers and <laughs> takes you to a movie and stares at you and says, I really like you. You know what I mean? <laughs> like then like it just you're like, oh, I just don't feel anything. Right. Sure. Um, and so what? Uh, there's like a few kind of quick fixes, you know, one is to like try to do adrenaline producing things on your date, like, you know, do skydiving. Um, you know, at least go to a new restaurant, you know, mm-hmm. um, go to a scary movie, you know, do some stuff that's, you know, going to get your blood pumping. Um, or you can also think about the very exciting drama of what it would be like to walk down an aisle to commit your life and your body and have babies with somebody like that is, you know, kind of exciting stuff, too. So to summarize for our listeners, a strategy to consider is give Steady Eddie a chance. Take him skydiving. Start planning that wedding at the Ritz, followed by spitting out a couple Steady Eddie juniors. <laughs> no, I think that's great. And one last thing, I know we are pressed for time. So a question that Aaron and I like to ask every one of our guests what advice do you have for us and our listeners regarding how we can help make the world a better place? Well, that's such a good question. I really think that by taking good care of ourselves, we uh, can equip ourselves to be most helpful to others, right? So um, the better care that we can take of ourselves and the more we understand ourselves, I think the more likely that we are going to be to to care for others. On a practical level, though, it can be helpful to choose a certain charity or choose a certain cause and just maybe decide that for the rest of the year, that's going to be your thing. And that when you kind of have the blues and think like, oh, I have so much privilege or, you know, how, how can I help others? You know, you've kind of already got in your mind like, oh, yeah, I will go to that place's website and see if they have like a, a march or a walk or I can make a donation or whatever I can do to help that particular cause. Awesome answer. And the book, again, is Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. You can find that book and also Ten Commandments, Dr. Chloe's Ten Commandments of Dating, How to Stop Getting Hurt, Put Yourself Out There, and Find a Relationship That Lasts. Go to drchloe.com. That's D-R-C-H-L-O-E.com. And there's also a wonderful online community I saw on your website where people can sign up for on-demand videos and some really cool self-help stuff out there on a subscription basis. So I highly recommend our listeners go check that out. Dr. Chloe, this has been so informative and such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. Thank you for the good work that you do uh, helping all of uh, us out there try to navigate our way through these waters. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Chloe Carmichael. To learn more about her, you can visit drchloe.com. Thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tampoco. Our music was written and performed by Nadia Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please subscribe and leave us a review. 
If you have a suggestion for a guest or have any suggestions on how we can improve our show, please send us an email to betterplaceprojectpodcast at gmail.com. Look for small ways to be kind to others this week, and that will help make the world a better place. 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 Make the world.